Hi, folks. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. Today, the first Jewish Supreme Court justice. A hundred years ago this month, Louis Brandeis ascended to the bench of the Supreme Court. Nominated by Woodrow Wilson, Brandeis was the first Jew to do so. He served there for 23 years, defending causes like the right to privacy, workers' protections, and the need to challenge monopolies. In a new biography of Brandeis, lawyer and writer Jeffrey Rosen makes the case that Brandeis was like Isaiah, a prophet, a sage. The book is called Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, and it's now out from Yale University Press, which sponsored this podcast. Jeffrey Rosen joins us from his office in Philadelphia to discuss it. Jeff Rosen, welcome to Vox Tablet. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. What was your initial introduction to Brandeis as a legal mind, and what impressed you at that point about him? I first encountered Brandeis through his great free speech and privacy opinions. I've written about privacy for a long time and, of course, read his great article on the right to privacy in 1890, the most famous article on the right to privacy ever written, where he denounced the tabloid press and the instant camera for ensuring that what used to be whispered in the closets was now shouted from the rooftops. Uh, And then I read his opinions about government surveillance and free speech. But it wasn't until beginning this biography and really reading uh, all of his work that I came to understand how dramatically he changed his mind about issues ranging from the right to privacy to the proper uh, scope of free speech. And I came to appreciate that he really became the greatest prophet of free speech and privacy and the greatest critic of bigness in business and government since his hero, Thomas Jefferson. You make that point in the book from the outset that he was greatly influenced by Jefferson. Can you draw that out a little bit for us? Yes. Uh, Brandeis had a Jeffersonian year between 1926 and 1927 where he read a lot of Jefferson. Uh, He read uh, uh, Jefferson's letters um, and he quoted them in his great free speech opinion, the Whitney uh, decision. But he also read a biography of Jefferson by Alfred J. Nock, and this influenced him so much that he wanted copies distributed to every school kid in Kentucky. And Nock paints Jefferson as the great libertarian. Nock was actually an opponent of the New Deal and of monopoly power, but Nock, like uh, Brandeis, viewed Jefferson as embodying a conflict, uh, a constitutional conflict dating back to the beginning of American history between Hamiltonians who protected the interests of oligarchs and the monopoly classes and Jefferson, who was the defender of small businessmen and agrarian farmers. And Brandeis took the Jeffersonian position that it had to be the small man, as he called it, the producer rather than the uh, financier whose interests were protected. And Brandeis became the greatest critic of monopoly power since Jefferson himself. I have to just uh, digress and say it seems almost heretical in this moment in 2016 to say anything that's at all negative about Hamilton. You're so right. The (laughs) musical, which is phenomenal, has completely uh, sort of uh, messed up uh, this wonderful uh, opportunity to recover the greatness of Jefferson. And we think of, I I just saw the show. And after seeing that unforgettable and not very appealing performance of Jefferson, it's it's hard to 
think of him as, as sympathetically as Hamilton. And of course, Jefferson also has another blemish on his legacy, and that is uh, slavery, which uh, he has to be held accountable for. Uh, but nevertheless, it's important to remember the contemporary and relevant aspects of Jefferson, and that is his economic populism. This election season is one where all of the major candidates on both sides of the aisle are denouncing the banks. Bernie Sanders is has proposed to break up the banks. Uh, that's a Jeffersonian and Brandeisian proposal, even though Sanders attributed it to Theodore Roosevelt. It was the wrong historical analogy. Actually, Roosevelt wanted to regulate the banks and keep them big. It was Brandeis and Wilson channeling Jefferson who wanted to break them up. Um, Jefferson proposed an amendment to the Constitution that would have prohibited Congress from setting up uh, corporations with exclusive privileges of monopolies. And in that sense, uh, he's a model for Hillary Clinton, who's responding to Sanders's populism by uh, proposing to prosecute the banks. And on the other side of the aisle, Ted Cruz has questioned uh, the bank bailout and has insisted on freedom to fail. And Donald Trump, who's channeling, channeling economic uh, populism and his protectionist opposition to trade uh, deals, uh, could learn from Brandeis and Jefferson as well. So it's true. The musical is great. And uh, Hamilton has much better songs than Jefferson does. <laughs> but, Jeff but Jefferson, despite his flaws, deserves some uh, big shout outs uh, in this time of great economic anxiety because of his heroic opposition to monopoly power, which Brandeis channeled so well. Let's take a step back for a moment. For people who know nothing except that Brandeis is the name of a university near Boston, who was he? Tell us a little bit about his background, where he came from. Uh, Brandeis was born in 1856. Uh, he was born to parents who fled the revolutions of 1848. They were called the Pilgrims of 1848 because uh, Brandeis's father left Prague in search of liberty and America. And he was a grain merchant, not a very successful one, but a more uh, successful small businessman. And he uh, married Brandeis's mother, and they put reading and music at the center of their values. Uh, Brandeis was raised as a non-observant Jew. His parents were relatives of followers of Jacob Frank, who was a kind of self-proclaimed Messiah, who was a prefigure of current Reform Judaism. And Brandeis was raised uh, unobservant, which made it all the more remarkable that in his 50s, he became the leader of the American Zionist uh, movement. Um, he's uh, raised in Louisville, Kentucky. He rem his mother's an abolitionist, and he remembers Union soldiers after the uh, Second Battle of Bull Run. Um, they are in favor of uh, racial equality in the household. But most of all, Brandeis absorbs from his parents the model of disciplined reading and learning and the importance of engaging in your community on a small scale. And he becomes this great defender of lifelong self-education, believing that only in small-scale communities can citizens master the facts that are necessary for personal and professional self-government. So throughout his career, he idealizes the agrarian uh, South, first of all, and then he comes to find in Israel, in the kibbutzim, the model of agrarian self-government that he so remembered from his childhood. You mentioned that in his 50s, he became an ardent Zionist. What caused him to adopt that point of view? 
it was a series of chance encounters. Uh, first, he met Jacob de Haas, who is Theodore Herzl's American secretary. Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism, dispatched de Haas, who was a journalist in Boston. De Haas went to interview Brandeis about uh, regulation of some kind. And in the course of the interview, he just mentioned in passing, Louis Dembitz was a noble Jew. Now, Dembitz was Brandeis's favorite uncle, his, his mother's uh, brother, the only Orthodox Jew in the family, and one of the three Jewish delegates to the 1860 Republican convention that nominated Abraham Lincoln. Brandeis admires his uncle so much that learning that he's a Zionist intrigues him, and he starts to read about Zionism with his usual incredible focus. Then later that year in 1910, he represents Jewish garment workers in a strike, and he's impressed. Uh, first of all, this is his first encounter with Eastern European Jews. He himself is from Central Europe, and he hadn't met Eastern Europeans who'd fled the pogroms before. He's impressed by the intellectualism and empathy, not only of the garment workers, but also of their employers, and on both sides' ability to empathize with the other side. And these two experiences, and plus his really disciplined learning, convince him that the Jews are a nationality, as he puts it, uh, who deserve their own country, just as every other nationality has a country. And he is transformed from having opposed what he called, channeling Theodore Roosevelt, hyphenated Americanism, to becoming uh, the leader of the American Zionist movement. And with his amazing energy and organizational abilities, he has all these slogans, men, money, discipline. He mobilizes uh, tremendous contributions. He persuades Woodrow Wilson to uh, persuade the British to recognize the Balfour Declaration and therefore is really more responsible than any other American in the 20th century for what ultimately became the creation of the state of Israel. It's an, it's an amazing story. And to do all this while he uh, is, is sitting on the Supreme Court and he continued his Zionist activities as a justice makes his achievement all the more remarkable. Did he come under fire for that? I mean, did people say, you're sort of exhibiting a dual loyalty, you have to choose one or the other? Between uh, Judaism and Americanism? Or between or being a, a sort of pro-Israel nationalist and an American? Uh, that was the original charge that Roosevelt uh, brandished in insisting that there was no place in America for hyphenated Americanism. And in fact, there's an ad accompanying this kind of rather backhanded endorsement of Brandeis in Life magazine that shows Americans walking into a melting pot and says, leave your hyphens here. But Brandeis had a response that he came up with, and it was he was really channeling Horace Callan, who was his acolyte and became the great theorist of cultural pluralism. And Brandeis's notion, uh, in, in, through conversations with Callan, was that by being better Jews, we could become better Americans, that there was no need to move to Palestine but that embracing your own uh, ethnic identity would allow all Americans to become members of ultimately the or orchestra of America that made up the whole. And that insight, which is really very modern and anticipates our contemporary uh, debates over multiculturalism, allowed Brandeis to respond to the charge of dual loyalty and having previously opposed uh, this sort of identity, he came enthusiastically to embrace it. Let me ask you, when Wilson nominated him and everyone knew he was Jewish, what kind of response was there? Not everybody was on board, as you describe it in the book. No, they certainly weren't. And there were absolutely undercurrents and sometimes not so subtle ones of anti-Semitism in his confirmation hearings. Brandeis waited 125 days for a hearing. Uh, that was the longest wait 
between nomination and confirmation in American history. It re- the re- record remains unbroken, although if Merrick Garland has not received a hearing by July, he'll he'll break the record. But there was absolutely anti-Semitism in the opposition. Opponents accused him of showing an Old Testament uh, cruelty toward his critics. Um, President William Howard Taft, whom Brandeis had embarrassed in uh, a congressional investigation of environmental wrongdoing, uh, criticized Brandeis as an emotionalist and a controversialist in terms that have a sort of anti-Semitic cast today. And uh, once in the confirmation hearings, a Boston Brahmin said that Brandeis sailed under false colors because he didn't realize when he first met Brandeis that he was a Jew. That was sort of a Freudian slip. Otherwise, the word wasn't spoken a lot. But it didn't have to be. Nevertheless, Judaism wasn't the only grounds of opposition. The real reason Brandeis had to wait so long uh, was that he had angered the uh, oligarchic classes. And there's a remarkable chart that used to hang in the old New Republic offices, which I saw when I worked there uh, for many years, showing the connections between the interests that were amassed in opposition to Brandeis, ranging from Abbott Lawrence Lowell, the anti-Semitic president of Harvard at the time, to State Street bankers, to J.P. Morgan, whose um, was related to the publisher of the New Republic by marriage and ultimately persuaded the New Republic not to run the chart. But all, all this is to say that it was a mix of economic and uh, re- religious opposition that led Brandeis to wait so long for a hearing. But he finally got one and was indeed confirmed on June 1st, 1916, which is 100 years ago uh, to the day of the publication of this book. I read somewhere, I think it was in your book, but forgive me if it wasn't, that in fact one of his uh, colleagues on the bench refused to shake his hand, would never sit next to him. And that was purely out of a sort of anti-Semitic animus. And I wonder, how did he respond to such affronts? Yes, this was the infamous James McReynolds, uh, arguably the most disagreeable man ever to sit on the Supreme Court. He was an open anti-Semite and racist who said, I am not to be found and a Hebrew is abroad and refused to even travel with uh, the court when when Brandeis was part of the traveling party. He would leave the conference room when Brandeis spoke and was just astonishingly rude. Oliver Wendell Holmes called McReynolds a natur mensch, you know, a kind of Nietzschean uh, force of nature, uh, animalistic creature in his, in, his, in his hatreds, which were very elemental, said Holmes. Uh, Brandeis just ignored it. He um, rose above all this kind of nonsense. He ran circles around McReynolds, his dissents from McReynolds' uh, careless and conclusory opinions uh, live today, whereas McReynolds' kind of shabby work product has been forgotten, and he (laughs) never uh, showed himself to be rattled in any way by the appalling behavior of his anti-Semitic colleague. You make the point quite clearly in the book that you see Brandeis as a prophetic figure. Explain a little bit why. I mean, that's such high praise. What is the basis for such a... uh, an accolade. Well, I was intrigued by the fact that everyone called him Isaiah. FDR would write letters to him saying, my dear Isaiah, or, you know, and he would call him old Isaiah. So he saw him as a prophet and others described him as a prophet too. Dean Acheson, Truman's secretary of state, who was one of Brandeis's law clerks, described how Brandeis would go into prophetic mode and would denounce 
uh, immorality and say truth is uh, morals and morals are universal and they can't be compromised. And he showed an almost elemental force uh, like the prophet Isaiah himself. Now, Isaiah was famous for denouncing the Jewish people for falling short of morality and exhorting them to remain ethical, not merely observant, uh, lest they be punished uh, once again. So for all these reasons, plus the fact that Brandeis in his older years looked like an Old Testament prophet with his impressive shock of gray hair and his imposing height, uh, made him seem uh, like a prophetic force to his contemporaries. But I call him a prophet in addition because he was literally prophetic about so many of the questions of privacy, free speech, and technology that confront us today. His remarkable opinion in Olmsted, the wiretapping case, looks forward to the age of cyberspace. There's this amazing passage where Brandeis had wanted to describe television, which was a new technology. He misunderstood it as a technology where people could see each other from both sides of the camera. Basically, he anticipated Skype and webcams, Mm. and his law clerk persuaded him to take out the reference. But Brandeis alludes to it, and he has this stunning passage where he says, ways may some day be developed by which it's possible without physically extracting papers from desk drawers to introduce them in court. He looks forward to fMRI machines when he talks about advances in the psychic uh, sciences. He had this astonishing ability because of his intense, clear-sighted focus on the need to translate new technologies in light of uh, old constitutional values to write opinions that remain as fresh and modern in the 21st century as they were in the 20th. So for all these reasons, I thought it was appropriate to call the book Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet, and for me, he is the great constitutional prophet of the 20th century. You also make the point that he was a very clear writer, I mean, that he would go over his drafts again and again to make his prose uh, intelligible to anyone, not just people in the legal community. They are, and I love to read his opinions, and it's great to read them out loud because you have a sense of what good writing is. It's not jargony, it is clear, it's written for ordinary citizens. This is a passage from his Whitney concurrence, which is so beautiful. Just listen to this, I'll just to get a taste of sure. how he wrote. Those who won our independence believe that the final end of the state was to make men free to develop their faculties, and that in its government, the deliberative forces should prevail over the arbitrary. They valued liberty both as an end as an end as a means. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. There he's quoting almost directly from uh, Alfred Zimmern's translation of Pericles' funeral oration. Zimmern's uh, book on the Greek polis was one of Brandeis's favorite, and he's uh, actually improving the translation with a kind of crisp balance that makes the sentence even more memorable. Um, and I could go on, but the, the the power of these words are unlike... Oliver Wendell Holmes, for example, who loved philosophical abstractions and showy aphorisms, um, or at Benjamin Cardozo, who was more celebrated in his time as a judicial stylist, Brandeis is writing directly to the reader. He's trying to communicate in his style as in his politics. He was indeed a Democrat. What I also loved in the book, actually, is you quote extensively from his personal letters, his letters to family, to his mother, such uh, impassioned declarations of love. Were, were sort of uh, amazing to come upon in this consideration of somebody who, you know, was such a central figure in uh, 
sort of the development of constitutional law. They're incredibly moving, and I'm just looking for his beautiful letter to his mother, which should be a model for all <laughs> for sons, all sons. <laughs> because it's so well it's so well stated. He said here um, uh, that. Well, he praised her first by saying that the greatest combination of good fortune any man can have is parentage unusual for both brains and character. But he went on to say, here it is, I must send you another birthday greeting, he says to his mother, and tell you how much I love you, he wrote to his mother in when he was 32 years old in 1888. He says, with each day I learn to extol your love and your worth more and that when I look back on my over my life, I can find nothing in your treatment of me that I would alter. I believe, most beloved mother, that the improvement of the world, reform, can only arise when mothers like you are increased thousands of times and have more children. Wow, it's pretty hard to beat that. I read that to my mom and said, I'll, I'll try to do better uh, next time I send an email. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, you note in the book in talking a little bit about uh, Jefferson and um, Brandeis's uh, uh, appreciation of Jefferson that Jefferson's blind spot was the fact that he himself was a slave owner. Now, Brandeis obviously was not a slave owner and his family was uh, pro-abolition. But you do go out of your way to say that although he championed civil rights, he didn't uh, – he wasn't on any bully pulpit about it. He didn't take major uh, positions on dissents in those cases. Um, and it almost felt to me as a reader a little bit like you were apologizing on his behalf. You know, I wasn't trying to apologize. I was trying openly to acknowledge the criticism and grant its validity. I say that on the court, Brandeis settled into what, it, what, what one critic, my GW uh, colleague, as described as an extended period of racial ambivalence, he silently joined the majority in every race case that came before the court. Some of these advanced racial equality, others didn't, but he took a leadership role in none of them. Um, and although he was he was neither more or less supportive of racial equality than other progressive justices of his era, uh, I think that it's a blind spot because his silence on race contrasts with his enthusiastic support for women's suffrage, which he'd initially opposed but came enthusiastically to support. And he said that what changed his mind about women's suffrage was working with this, these remarkable women in the progressive movement to defend the constitutionality of maximum uh, working hours for women, including a sister-in-law and, and, and others. Uh, he never worked closely, by contrast, with African-American lawyers. It's true that he did inspire uh, Thurgood Marshall, to write the Brandeis brief that led the court to strike down school desegregation in Brown versus Board of Education. And he also inspired the president of Howard University to hire as dean uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, the great litigation director of the NAACP. Uh, but I, I don't think I think Brandeis's silence on racial issues um, is a blind spot for him. And I acknowledge it uh, explicitly. It's unfortunate that this great tribune of liberty and equality who was so eloquent about the need for Jews and also for women to be included in the increasingly expansive notion of American uh, democracy uh, didn't take more of a leadership role on race. In the book, you make the case that Brandeis is a good role model for finding a path today in our divided and, and quite contentious political landscape. 
explain how how is he a good role model? Um, he is the figure who unites and blends strains on both sides of our contested politics today. He was a critic of bigness in both business and in government. And in that sense, he can appeal both to civil libertarian liberals and to libertarian conservatives who are united by their opposition to NSA surveillance, uh, but also in their opposition to monopoly power. He can uh, unite uh, both sides because he endorsed Jeffersonian ideals of small government and local democracy, but he applied these ideals to uphold state regulations that tame the excesses of big business and monopoly. That's why he's a unifying vision of liberty and democracy for our divided age. As listeners will know, and you yourself mentioned it earlier, uh, we are right now short of justice on the Supreme Court. There are senators who simply refuse to even meet with Merrick Garland, who is the nominee put forth by President Obama. What do you think Louis Brandeis would have to say about this impasse? You know, I cha- I'd love to channel Brandeis. And in the last chapter of the book, I ask repeatedly, WWBD or what would Brandeis do? <laughs> <laughs> Just my, fa- my favorite thought experiment. And of, and of course, like most people who are channeling their heroes, I assume Brandeis would agree with me on, on most <laughs> issues. I don't uh, well, and and maybe that's my the weakness of this answer. But um, I, I don't I don't know that Brandeis would have had a strong view about whether or not the Senate has a constitutional duty to hold hearings. You can argue that one round or flat, uh, and I'm not going to you know give the best arguments on both sides. Uh, I I, th- I think he understood the confirmation process to be essentially a political one. Certainly, his own conduct where he set up his own real-time opposition research response team and would have all of the criticisms of him telegraphed to his Boston office. He would bring out uh, from his extensive files the right response and send it back and have it channeled through uh, delegates. He, he, he understood uh, the political stakes. On the other hand, as, as someone who waited 125 days for a hearing, he certainly knew the frustrations and indignities of uh, not being able to get a vote. I, I, he, 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 was a, he was a strong Democrat, so I, I don't have any doubt that he would have supported uh, Merrick Garland's confirmation and would, 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 have, would have wanted a court to have uh, been uh, continued to channel uh, what were ultimately his progressive ideals on free speech, privacy, and uh, technology. At, at the same time, given the fact that there are libertarian conservatives who also embrace some of those ideals, um, you know, he he wasn't a he wasn't a partisan Democrat, and it was very striking to me that all of the current justices of the Supreme Court have cited Brandeis on behalf of different propositions, both liberals and conservatives, and that he was cited as the greatest justice by at least uh, a number of contributors to a symposium on the Supreme Court by Reason, the Libertarian magazine. Uh, both libertarian conservatives and civil libertarian liberals have embraced him as a hero. The the bottom line is I think he would have been dismayed by the polarization and the partisan character into which our confirmation hearings have uh, deteriorated even more dramatically since his day and uh, yearned for a way out. One final question. If there was a single case or opinion that Brandeis issued that uh, you consider his most influential, which one is it? 
It's Whitney, the great free speech opinion, and I hope all listeners will give themselves the pleasure of checking it out. You can find it online. It's Whitney versus California, 1927. I began to read some of his beautiful words from Whitney, but Whitney is his greatest defense uh, of the reason that we defend free speech, and it's the greatest defense of free speech in the 20th century, and it uh, exemplifies the American free speech tradition. It was Brandeis in Whitney who insisted that speech could only be banned if it was intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. That principle distinguishes Americans from Europe, which bans hate speech routinely. It was eventually embraced by the Supreme Court in 1967. Uh, but Whitney is important not only because of its doctrinal contribution, but because also it's the greatest philosophical defense of the reason we protect free speech of the 20th century. Um, and it's based in Brandeis's incredible faith in the power of reason. Uh, he thinks that as long as there's time enough for deliberation, the best remedy for evil counsels is good ones, and counter-speech is more appropriate than banning hate speech. He says, if I may, I'll Please. just quote the um, end of this incredible passage. Interestingly, again, he's attributing these views to those who won our independence, to the revolutionaries of 76, not the Constitution drafters of 87, because he's a Jeffersonian. And he believes that speech is a natural right inherent in all uh, men and women. And Brandeis says of the revolutionaries, they believe that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. That without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile. That with them, discussion affords ordinarily adequate protection against the dissemination of noxious doctrine. That the greatest menace to freedom is an inert people. That public discussion is a political duty and that this should be a fundamental principle of the American government. That is just incredible writing. And the footnote at the end of this remarkable passage is to Jefferson's 1801 letter to Elijah Boardman, a future U.S. Senator who talked about the importance of protecting freedom of opinion. And Brandeis also quotes Jefferson's first inaugural address. Uh, so Whitney is not only Brandeis's greatest opinion, but I think the greatest uh, defense of free speech ever produced on the Supreme Court. And had Brandeis written nothing else, he would uh, deserve a place in our constitutional pantheon. The fact that he also wrote the greatest opinions on privacy uh, that he was the most important critic of bigness since Jefferson and in his spare time uh, did more than anyone else to help found the state of Israel uh, makes him, uh, in my mind, uh, one of the greatest Americans of his time. Jeffrey Rosen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Jeffrey Rosen is the president of the National Constitution Center. He's also a professor of law at George Washington University. Most recently, he's got a new book out. It's called Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. It is the latest title in the Yale University Press Jewish Live series. It's a wonderful biography. Go get yourself a copy. Our podcast is Vox Tablet. It's produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again. 